You are now listening to the Holberg Prize 2015 special episode of Udanet, a Norwegian academic podcast. I'm your host Knut Melvar and I'm proud to present this year's Holberg Prize laureate, Professor Marina Warner. Marina Warner is first and foremost a writer of both non-fiction and fiction books. And she is a rather successful one. Her academic achievements are many. She has given the BBC Read Lectures. She has received honorary doctorates and fellowships at several universities. And until recently she was a professor at the University of Essex. Now she is currently employed as a professor of creative writing at Burbeck University of London. She is also the chair of the Man Booker International Prize. Now, it was delightful to get to talk with Marina Warner, but I must admit, a, a bit daunting. But I'm certain that you will find this next hour and so very interesting. And uh, if you like this interview, please go into iTunes and leave us a review or some stars. So I wanted to start by giving you the opportunity to sort of spin the myth of uh, Marina Warner. And uh, I think every myth has some kind of beginning. Uh, so where does the myth of Marina Warner, the now renowned scholar, begin? Uh, well, I, um, well, of course, myth has two meanings, two dominant meanings. And one is a lie, as you know, and an illusion. And the other is a story of greater truth than as it were, a realistic or objective account, a kind of poetic truth. So um, I could be a lie and an illusion. <laughs> and, um, uh, but um, I suppose that my work has been an, um, a, an attempt to understand the human ways of telling fantastic stories from both those perspectives, both from the illusory perspective, which often has an ideological and political component, um, all the way across to the much more radiant and much more satisfying um, conception of myth as a deeper and poetic truth. So, so I've, I've, I've worked pretty much now all my life, actually, in that territory. And it's very complicated territory, um, which is why I've continued to ask questions and in fact I think probably every book I've written has been spurred by the questions left over from the one before. It's quite a, they're quite a, quite a connected series in fact, which I can tell you more about. But in terms of how it began for me, I mean why I began in that way, I think probably my, um, I was dealt a very, I was dealt a very unusual and very inspiring hand by fate because my mother was Italian both my parents are dead now but my mother was Italian from the south of Italy a place of extraordinary historical layering she you know she came from that part of Italy Puglia which is has been Lombard Byzantine Greek I'm not doing it in chronological order um, and and though when she was growing up in period of fascism, it was a benighted place full of 
terrible political oppression and cruelty and ignorance, um, they, the inhabitants, were still very, very aware of the depth of history in which they were living. And that part of the world still remains very central to my preoccupations. It's the Mediterranean basin, ranging you know, from the west, westerly points where you open up into the Atlantic and to the New World, because that's been something I've also looked at, right across to the east and across to the Fertile Crescent and to the Tigris and Euphrates, where the earliest documents of literature that have come to us, the Epic of Gilgamesh, were found and were created. So that's, that's, my, that's the kind of geography of my imagination. And it does depend really on my mother. It, it was sparked by that. And then my father took us as a young family when I was only six months to Egypt. And there he opened a bookshop which was burnt down in the riots of 1952, the nationalist riots, um, against foreign occupation, particularly the British colonial rule. It was not meant to be rule. It was meant to be protectorate, but it was rule. Um, and um, and so that was I was six at the time. So that uh, so that was also very, you know, that shaped my concerns because that's one of my earliest memories is my father's bookshop being burned. So why culture had this presence? What what it meant to, that it was so important to people and what it said that it could be destroyed as well as it could be appreciated. And that's something I learned very early. So I'm very committed to the expressive and active effects of literature, the imagination and culture. So had you decided from, from very early on then to, to take this path into, into the academy and into writing and, and so on? Well, actually, I wanted to be a writer from early on. Um, in fact, I did write quite a lot when I was a child. Um, and um, I began probably writing more poetry than I wrote prose. And I, when I, um, I didn't, I didn't really imagine myself to become to enter the academy or become any kind of a scholar because I really my my role models were, well, when I was young, were people like Shelley, the poet, um, or the Bronte sisters. And then as I grew older. Um, well, as, when I was a young young woman, I was very keen on writers like George Orwell and Virginia Woolf. And now, of course, I have you know many, many, many uh, writers in my pantheon. But um, but I um I always wanted to write, and and I did things to finance my writing because I wanted to write the books that I want. You know, I was writing. I wanted to write them not for a marketplace. I was very keen to. Sort of try to. I didn't. It wasn't that I wanted to fail in the marketplace, but I didn't want to adapt what I was writing to the demands of sales. So I wanted to do the marketing part of my writing to finance the independent part of my writing. So I began as a journalist, and um, and I was a journalist for many years um, to in order to write my books. Um, for example, when I wrote my Virgin Mary study, I was. Um, working as a journalist, and and in those days, the late sixties, seventies, there were a lot of magazines that would would first of all, living was not as expensive as it is now, and that's in general terms. That's not. I mean, that's in proportion to what's happened. I mean, it's 
even if, even if what I earned then was translated into present-day figures, I could still live on much, much less than, than you can now. So that's... Um, um, so I, I survived, and I, you know, had, I used to write about, I wrote about, a bit about fashion, I wrote a lot about cinema, I used to be the theatre uh, reviewer for Vogue, um, and that kind of thing, and I just kept going, and I, all the time I wrote my books. And then, over, I began to be more and more in demand. In fact, as an academic, one of the first places um, was the University of Erasmus University in Rotterdam, who invited me to be a professor. I was astonished. So I was given the Tinbergen chair at the University of Rotterdam. And before that, actually, probably, sorry, this was the most surprising invitation. I was rung up from California, from Los Angeles, by the Getty, then called the Getty Institute of Humanities. No, it's now called the Getty Institute of Humanities. Then it was called the Getty Center for the Humanities. It was in its second year. Now, of course, a very, very famous institute. It was in its second year, and it was still in Santa Monica. It hadn't yet gone up to the Getty Museum complex on the hill in Brentwood in Los Angeles. Um, and this telephone call, this is the days before email, this telephone call said, would you come to the Getty Institute as a visiting scholar? Um, and that was one of the first ways that I entered academic life. Then the Rotterdam professorship followed. Um, and then I just found that gradually my, my ways of financing my writing were not, no longer coming from journalism. Journalism had ceased to be interested in the kind of features and criticism that I wrote. The newspapers have changed character in this country. And um, I was earning my living from teaching. And I like teaching a lot. I really like, I mean, especially as I've got older, I really like meeting young people. Anyway, this is probably not very interesting for you. I mean, it, it does make me, I mean, it's, it's very sort of, I'm sure it's very surprising for the profile of somebody who's been given this prize. To have this, uh, I've had a very unorthodox career there's no doubt about it and i i think that's that is interesting uh, because it sounds like you don't you don't you didn't have the typical path into the academy uh, so, well i think yeah. there's a gender i think there's a gender element here and i think it's possibly worth mentioning this absolutely one of the one of the things that it, i was definitely divided in my childhood between my mother who was very glamorous beautiful italian woman very and, and used to the diptych I always mention is that they used to sit on either side of the fire. My mother would be reading Vogue, and my father would be reading the Times Literary Supplement. Hmm. <laughs> and these, I became exactly bifurcated between these two poles, because I adored my mother, and she was also an entirely entrancing person, and she was a brilliant, brilliant at, I mean, brilliant at making clothes, and she made me clothes, and. And, and we shared that very much together, this sort of love of fashion. And then, but on the other hand, my you know, father, I had all the, his interests as well. He was a very good um, historian and had a, a fabulous memory and was a tremendous storyteller about figures from the past. To walk around a city with my father was you know, a marvelous experience because he could bring to life. I remember when I was about 14, we went to Paris and we were walking around 
the Marais, he was talking about all the people in, the, in Paris in the past before the revolution, and it was you know very very exciting and, and very inspiring. So I was I had these two people, and and I attended to my mother's side um, to begin with because of the gen of gender because it wasn't so common in those days in the kind of class I came from for women to be intellectuals. I was much more destined to be, you know, the ornament of some household. Mm. <laughs> and because I went to a school that didn't send women to university, the nuns actually gave me a good education. I went to a convent school. The, the nuns gave me a good education, in retrospect, a very good education and a very broad one because we did many things. We did music, we did drama, um, but they didn't expect me to they didn't expect any of their girls to go to university or have a job. We were all meant to marry good Catholics and have lots of good Catholic children. I mean, this is, you know, I was born in 46. And you had to belong to a, a, an emancipated family, a sort of much more, and have a emancipated mother. My mother was not. She was a southern Italian woman, and she was very concerned about survival. And for her, women's survival depended on their being womanly, not on their being intellectuals. So, um, and my father thought that, you know, okay, writing was a good, excellent thing that I might want to do. After all, he very much liked, you know, he was a great reader. But he didn't think that this was an, going to ever be an income, that I must marry well, I must try and marry well. So I was brought up really without, you know, because of my agenda, I was brought up with, narrow ambitions and it was only by I mean it, might, it would have been very different if I'd been a man then the fact that I was good at you know good at school that I was it, it would be natural for me to carry on and become a professional intellectual but I had to get to it by a zigzag route because of the fact that the, my ex, the expectations people had of me and the anxieties they had on my account of how women survive um, led me to begin with in a different direction. But did you feel that you um, uh, sort of uh, didn't meet these expectations or was it just more unconscious in a way? I, it, it, it felt, in the case, my mother was always very, very worried at the path I'd taken. Yeah. She was fairly she wasn't hostile but she was anxious she she felt that feminism was a very very bad um career choice that <laughs> 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 it would only lead it would only lead to disaster that women <laughs> needed to you know be you see the precariousness of the exist my mother i wrote a novel actually about my mother's childhood which is called the lost father and the it's based very closely on the circumstances, though the actual story is romanced and changed. But, um, but so the four daughters were left um, with a widowed mother, um, and, um, and uh, but they came from a sort of lower middle class, so they couldn't. They had to be they had to be you know live in a polite fashion, and this was very very precarious. So my mother, having been brought up in genteel poverty, never really got over a sense of the abyss opening up. And the the idea for her that women should work for their own living and not to be dependent on men, she just thought that was too dangerous, very, very risky. And she was always begging me to try and make the best of myself. 
<laughs> whenever I, if I talked on the te- on if I was on television talking about something, she would say afterwards, "Why did you wear your glasses?" <laughs> I'm afraid this is a very very characteristic story of women gr- who grew up in the fifties and sixties. I would ima- imagine. And so. you, you were probably born in what? You were born in ninety something, were you? Eighty-five, uh, actually. 85, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um. So it's yes, it's your your grandmother's. You have to ask your grandmother what she how she was. But but I guess every parent would be worried when their when their child want to become a writer. I guess I think I don't think that has changed. Oh, so possibly not. That's right. Yeah. But they gave me a lot. Of, I have to say that they gave me a lot of support as well. So it's not as if it it isn't as if they withdrew their support. It's just that they 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 they, they were they were disapproving, but they supported me. And and one thing is your your parents, but also the society and culture that you grew up in. Uh, up in. Uh, yes, it's very. I mean, for for people, you know, in. I mean, one of the reasons that I like reading novels, actually, um, and I've been reading a lot of novels for the Man Booker International Prize, which I'm judging this year. Um, the um, one of the reasons I like reading novels is that they are the the most richest entry into the way these subtleties of convention, custom, emotion play out in, in another culture. And I mean, you have some excellent, um, excellent novelists in, in Norway. And, um, you know, you, one gets a feeling from someone like Per Pettersson, one gets a really strong feeling of a rather tragic, tragic, sinister dark feeling of the texture of life in places do you, do, do you know his work yeah I, I read um, uh, I don't know the English translation but uh, Stealing Horses perhaps yes yeah. yes, yes, that's yes, wonderful yes, uh, yes so he's a very good example of you know opening up a territory that I would never live or experience myself but I live and experience it vividly in my mind through his work so um and so the world that i came from is a world that you would have encountered in in novels about english english life with its possibly from the past i mean there are touches of sort of there are more touches of evelyn war in my childhood than there are of virginia woolf even though my father was a bookish man he wasn't a blo- he wasn't part of Bloomsbury. He was much more part of the country house, uh, sort of slightly rough, that, that, that English upper-class roughness that Evelyn War catches very well. A certain sort of ruthless, ruthless um, arrogance and sense of entitlement. That was my father's complicated background. Now on the other on that side on the on the, my father's side, um, there was another aspect that was very important to my uh, formation, and that is that they were originally from the West Indies. Uh, my father's father was born in Trinidad, and he was one of many many generations of Warners who were white Creoles, um, and that's because they had settled in the Caribbean in the ages ago. I mean, in the 17th century, hmm. and my father was very very proud of this that we had this very long imperial history. So you can imagine that for a sort of firebrand 
uh, <laughs> teenager <laughs> that I was. Um, this was not something I was very proud of myself. But I and and it and it 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 you know it caused me to question and to think about the empire, to think about British rule, and it converged with the Egyptian um, episode, you know, the period we had in Egypt. So the two were aspects of this effortless sense of of power and influence that the British used to have. Fortunately, we don't have it anymore, which is a good thing. Um, but I have written a bit about that. I mean, even in the books that are... Um, I mean, I wrote another novel, The Indigo, which is about the Caribbean side of my family. But but actually, this all this is reflected very strongly in my critical work, too. I mean, you've, hmm. you've probably noticed, I mean, that I'm, I'm very interested in attitudes to race, I'm very interested in attitudes to power, to tyranny, to oppression, to, to silencing, to slavery. You know, the, these are, even though I try not to make it, you know, too didactic, I, I, I am very concerned with how fairy tales, how the, the common currency of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a culture um, circulates values all the time. And that one of the tasks of, of reading and inquiry, of the kind that I try to practice, one of the tasks is to capture the 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 work of those values and the shaping of them and how they change over time. I mean, I suppose that there are two main principles that have governed my approach to reading and, and to interpretation. And one, one is that all texts, all texts, and that's iconographical texts as well, so all texts that are communicating thought are embedded in history, and in that in that sense, so that though, so that though it's very difficult to uncover this, very difficult to you know to observe and to listen to the changing um, features of these histories, and they're very complex because they change in microwaves too, from one village to a town, from one town to a country, from one country to a continent and so forth. It's very, very hard to do. But you can you can sort of try and listen in like a doctor, you know, like taking the pulse of, of what the historical change is. Now that it that in fairy tale studies and mythic studies, it, that you, you said you study myth. That that's Jean Pierre Vernon. You do do you read him? Yeah, I don't think so. Ah well, Jean Pierre uh, Vernon was a wonderful, wonderful man. He died a few years ago, very old. Um terrifically wise um, of the, that French school of mytho mythological um, interpretation, um, and he 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 profound he was a profoundly political thinker. He had been a resistant when he was really young. He was about seventeen when he was the chef de of the partisans in the south of France. A man of great bravery, great personal courage and charm, and and um, and he and he had this um, terrific belief in the power of myth and the power of myth for good you know this is something hard because of the Nazis it made a problem about that but um, he believed in that but he believed that you had, it had to be all the time history had to be brought into the interpretation to see what was happening so, so and that, that, that historical and socio-historical 
approach to the understanding and unpacking and interpretation of myths um, pretty much runs counter to the generalized um, psychoanalytical view. But it doesn't exclude psychoanalytical insights. But it does mean that the idea that there's a fixed archetype needs to be challenged. So just to give you an example, which I've written about quite often and, and discussed in different ways, is the figure of the wicked stepmother. Hmm. So in psychoanalytical, psychoanalytical theory, the wicked stepmother is an effect of splitting and the bad mother is a necessary safety valve for the child's hostile feelings towards the mother. So the child splits the mother into the bad mother and good mother so that he or she, the little child, can actually cope with the antagonistic feelings that you inevitably have, the ambivalence that you inevitably have about your parent. Well, the trouble with this theory is that while it has definitely perception, perception, perceptions about human survival and so forth, it has tended, in effect, in society to allow the flourishing of figures of wicked stepmothers because people, writers and filmmakers, and think, well, this is a safety valve. This is, Whereas this wicked stepmother, according to the kind of view that I like to advocate, is a figure from early modern, the early modern past, when women, rather like my own mother, were competing for survival and totally dependent on men, they died in childbirth, so a new woman would come into a household where there'd be already children from an earlier marriage. And she would then have her own children, and they would be competing for scarce resources. And she would then favor her own children over the children of the earlier marriage. So in my view, the wicked stepmother is an effect of these social circumstances, social and economic circumstances, that per were pervasive in Europe um, before a certain period, before penicillin. <laughs> before, mm. um, so, um, so the psychoanalytic view has rather entrenched something that could actually be overcome by different social and economic circumstances. And the wicked stepmother figure is not helpful to the stepmothers now, who are produced by a very different set of circumstances, which is divorce. It's a very different thing from a mother dying. I mean, of course, mothers do unfortunately die as well, but not in the numbers they used to die. So now stepmothers are very common because many people in Europe and America and um, remarry, and there are multiple step-sibling step families. But actually, in the practice and reality, step-sibling families can be rather harmonious. Um, some, I mean, quite a lot of, just in my own personal experience, quite a lot of children actually rather like having suddenly lots of new brothers and sisters, because if there isn't competition, deathly competition for resources, there's, this can actually be a rather enjoyable state. And if there is harmony, between the separated parents, which there can be, it's not not always the case. Of course, I'm not I'm not being too Pollyannish about this, but it is possible for people to come to an agreement and to live harmoniously in these ex new extended contemporary families, which are very different from fairy tale families. So there's no point in continuing to entrench those stereotypes in the interest of a psychoanalytical theory, and that has been the tendency. Do, do you see what I mean? Absolutely, uh, and um, do you have, this is a rhetorical question perhaps, but uh, do you have um, any examples of how um, uh, fairy tales or a myth or, or story are now adapted to this kind of new 
role, the, the new stepmother role, has to. Oh be yes, good. I mean it's very very much so, and I think that um, I mean there's a huge responsiveness and interest, and the rise of interest in fairy tale and myth has been dramatic, quite extraordinary. How much? When I first started be, being working on myth and fairy tale, they were universally. Um, belittled, really. People thought mm. of fairy tale as ch childish, childish, not just children's literature, but just childish and um, frivolous, really, and and of not literary interest. I mean, of too thin, too not not there not there being enough there to to warrant literary interest. Um, and then there was a kind of tremendous shadow of anxiety hanging over myth because of the ideological uses by fascist regimes and indeed totalitarian regimes too and that is a tendency within myth mm. so it needs that's one of the reasons that its its workings need to be observed and analyzed and if necessary resisted so um, yes because I was going to say that that's the second that they're connected but the sort of two pillars of my approach are one this attempt to keep looking at the socio-historical um, context. And the other, it really comes out of Barthes' idea, uh, Mythologie, the book, very influential book um, for me, but also for many, many other people, um, which is to to be aware of the ideological content. The two are connected, actually. I mean, the, the, political, the, the political is connected to the socio-historical. And, of course, feminism was very important in that, because feminism became very interested in fairy tales, in the 70s, deeply committed to the understanding of fairy tales because of so many female characters in fairy tales, negative and positive. And, uh, and therefore, a lot of interesting work, really a lot of interesting work was done by feminist poets and psychoanalysts and, you know, on the, on the content of fairy tale to, to look for this politicization of the female, of female character, female, you know, what was femininity. Um, and and a, a great there was a you know tremendous a tremendous harvest of new meanings began to be reaped at that point. Now you asked me about an example. It was an interesting example recently. First of all, there's been a number of enormous films, as you've probably noticed, and I'm sure you've seen some of them. The you know the the Dream Factory is making more and more fairy tale films. Hmm. There's about to be a new Cinderella. So. Um, for the first time they've made Cinderella, the Disney have made Cinderella since I think the last the 50, since the 50s. Anyway, they've, Snow White is, keeps returning. Uh, Maleficent, the film made with, by Angelina, with Angelina Jolie as the wicked fairy at the Sleeping Beauty's christening. Um, that's a kind of Snow White remake. Snow White being the first uh, full-feature Disney animation, 1937, and a, and a classic, which was imprinted many, many generations with its um, different characters, from the cuddly dwarves to the um, wicked queen. And, um, and, and Maleficent, I think, shows the influence of some of the feminist thinking about fairy tales, because it has a twist at the end which you have to tell your, this is what's called a spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has a twist at the end, which is that the um, wicked fairy, uh, when she realizes that the, the, the prince comes into the bedroom, and when I went to see the film, 
one little boy in the audience cried cried out to the screen, "I know she's going to wake up now," <laughs> <laughs> and and he bends over her and kisses her, and she doesn't wake up. And when the wicked fairy sees that her curse is still holding, and the sleeping beauty Snow White figure is still in her enchanted sleep and hasn't woken up, she's absolutely horrified at what she's done. Because by this time, in this film, in Maleficent, she's become totally touched and loving towards this child. The child has won her over. And I thought when I saw the film that this was a very, very interesting twist, that the wicked fairy was now no longer able to continue to be wicked because she had been transformed by her relationship with the child. Um, and um, But then actually just the other day I was reading um, another version uh, and I found that in the 17th century uh, Italian telling of a similar story, the same thing happens. Oh, really? Yeah, Petrosinella by Basile, which is the early Rapunzel, one of the early Rapunzels. Um, in that story, the wicked fairy you know, locks up Rapunzel, throws the prince off the tower, curses Rapunzel. Rapunzel has twins, and then the prince, the blind, who's been blinded when he fell from the tower, eventually he finds Rapunzel again in a forest with her two little babies living in a wilderness and living in poverty, and they're reconciled, and then Rapunzel, Petrosinella, cries, and the prince's sight is restored. And then at that point, the wicked fairy finds them, and she's about to curse them and about to blast them to oblivion again, but her heart is touched by the sight of their love and the two children, and she repents. So the Maleficent ending in Disney actually picks up this... I mean, I don't know if they knew it. They tend These producers tend to do a lot of work. You know, They have teams of people to work for them. But anyway, it shows that in an earlier version, which I had not been aware of, I mean, I had read it, of course, but I hadn't sort of taken it in. In an earlier version, the idea of the regeneration of the wicked figure, the wicked stepmother cursing figure, was already present as a possibility in a fairy tale, but it had been deleted by the predominant retellings, which are Grimm, in which she dances in red-hot shoes, at Beirut, in which she's thrown into the cauldron of boiling oil and burnt to death, you know, so the revenge endings had taken precedence over the metamorphic endings. Hmm. And that's something that I've argued all, all throughout, that there's a tendency to go for the violent catharsis of the destruction of the enemy, the combat myth, in which um, good overcomes evil, evil, and evil is exterminated, the apocalyptic vision, sort of Christian apocalyptic vision of exterminating evil, um, that 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 takes preference in forms of narrative over time to the metamorphic model in which evil is transformed. So the Beauty and the Beast type of story in which the beast is regenerated, though that has persisted, on the whole has been less of a pattern than the um, combat myth. And I think, that's, I think that is actually pernicious. I think, on the whole, that's the kind of myth, you know, that underlies the war in Iraq and, um, you know, I've met many things in our present in our present day, rather than negotiation, transformation, conversion. Conversion, of course, is a dirty word, but um, conversion seems to me to be 
a more merciful principle, but not forced conversion. <laughs> not not what not what the Catholics did to the Moors and the Jews in Spain. Exactly. So this this has been uh, I think it's been a good introduction and a good example of how you approach myth and fairy tale or wonder tale if you want uh, not just yeah, as good, yes very good phrase <laughs> uh, not just as artifacts of the days of yore but as living and adapted and contemporary narratives yes uh, and you seem to be constantly up to date with the latest and greatest in popular culture and and an example of that which struck me perhaps because i'm what you could call a nerd is when you introduce one of your bbc right lectures with uh, a description of um, a video game fair that you attended <laughs> and, and and all although this is being like two decades ago yes it is a long time ago yes uh, most of what you talk uh, about in these lectures feel as relevant today which is perhaps a bit depressing when it comes to gender roles but i think it's, it's also a testament to your analytical skill and uh, and and that you see sort of the substantial in this in in these narratives, and um, we touched a bit on it. But how do you feel that um, the role or the form of myth and fairy tale has changed the last twenty years? If they have changed 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 at all? Well, I'm not as up in in contemporary popular culture as I was because my son is now thirty seven. <laughs> so when he when I wrote the wreath lectures, you see, he was playing video games, so I I knew about them, and um, so um, because it's it's more than twenty years ago, it's yeah twenty one years ago now, ninety four yeah. I think ninety four yeah. So he was sixteen. I agree with you that it's rather depressing. I'm I'm surprised that there have been some games. And there, I mean, there have been some changes in sensibility and values that are for the good. For example, it is really no longer surprising for a woman to be a minister of state. That's, that really is an achievement. And we have many, many ministers now. We, we still have very, very few women in parliament in proportion. I think you're much better in Norway than we are. Um, but um, but it's not surprising. I mean, when the, when the news is and then the minister comes on, it's a female voice, it's not a surprise. So that, that's a real, that's a change. It's, it's also a profound social change, and they're connected, of course, that there are now more women than men going to university, and they're doing better on the whole, actually at school as well. So Again, that's a huge, huge social revolution. You know, when I went to university, we were only 5% of the country went to university. And of that 5%, it was only, I think, 0.5%. That we were one in five, the women. So, you know, we were a real minority. So, and that has had a tremendous effect on gender relations because educated women are the key to social transformation. Um, you know, Amartya Sen did a famous analysis of this. The, liter the, the, the well-being of society depends on the literacy of women um, in, in, for very many complicated reasons. So, but that's, um, you know, really, really central. 
But one of the things that has not has not followed, and this is absolutely puzzling to me, is the emancipation of men. It's it's still very problematic. Masculinity is very problematic. Attitudes to it, um, living in it for for young men themselves and for older men too, um, and. It doesn't seem to, I mean, I agree with you that the, the sort of boys will be boys um, chapter, is in, in this country anyway, in the, in the culture of the UK, it's not very easy to um, find a way of being male that is not being constantly coded in a violent and aggressive fashion. I, I mean, I really don't know why that is. I have a friend who wrote a book, Carol Maver. She wrote an interesting book in which she, there's a, we have a word in English, sissy, which means a sort of soft boy. And um, she wrote a book in praise of it's the idea of soft, being soft. But it's very hard for a young man to really put himself across as soft. I mean, you can tell from even the sentence. Young men are being asked to be hard all the time. So... I think you have the same problem in Norway, that don't you? I think perhaps it's a global issue, but uh, in Norway, they, there is some kind of political will to sort of force a change, uh, having uh, parental leave and, and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think that we're bringing in longer paternal leave. That's it, it's true that in, in 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 I'm afraid there is a bit of a class element in this and. England is still a very class-bound society, much more so than other European countries, and I think much more so than than, than the Scandinavian countries. And it's a problem. It's a sort of it's rather embedded in our history. But anyway, um, it's true that the uh, in a certain the, amongst the people who've been to university, um, it is much easier for a, a young man who's been to university to be cuddling his children in public. That that then you know that's quite. That's now, which it wasn't in the fifties. That didn't happen in the fifties. Men didn't push prams in the fifties. But now they do push prams and they pick up their babies and give them bottles and everything. But it's not so common amongst those who haven't been to university. So there's a sort of. But anyway, more and more people are going to university. So maybe it will. The gender issues will 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 change. But of course, there's a there there the other failure that um, so it takes me by surprise um, is to do with women's bodies and that was you know we've made many many of the demands and requests and arguments of feminism have have been listened to actually it's not I mean they haven't been solved but they've been listened to and they're known to be you know worth listening to but the issue of women's bodies, which I think is very, very, very central to a lot of our conflicts, I think it lies more deeply within the conflict between the Middle East and Europe than we we than we admit. Um, and um, and that you know, when I was in my twenties, we were all fighting um, for the right for women to control the representation of their bodies. So that didn't mean that you couldn't have a nude, but it meant that the woman must be consenting to be nude, or there must be some 
you know, some she shouldn't just be a commodity, an objectified commodity. Um, and um, now that's really been forgotten, even by very mainstream companies. I mean, Marks and Spencer, which is one of our major, you know, retailers. You probably have them. I mean, it's probably a chain that um, routinely has rather young girls modeling underwear in huge festers. I mean, of course, they're overage. They're not underage, and because and they've given their consent. But somehow, it's I find it extremely. Um, I don't think it's at all diplomatic in terms of our relations, multicultural relations. I think if you're, you know, if you if you're a, I, I mean, in a sense, I sound rather old-fashioned on this, but I'm, I don't wish to provoke the sensibilities and sensitivities um, of. Are some of our, you know, my, our minority groups unnecessarily? I mean, I think when there's a political issue, then we should stand up for our political um, ideas of freedom. But I think in this respect, we should be more, 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 more careful. I think there is something needlessly um, exposing a, with showing an 18-year-old girl almost naked in the railway stations. I don't know what you think. What do you think? Well, So it's your, more your generation. So what do you think? One thing is sort of uh, how the uh, the large corporation corporations marketing um, bodies. But another thing that adds to the, to the complexity is uh, social media and how young girls themselves uh, market their bodies. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Because of expectations both from their pair group uh, but also which these corporations are pro contributing to I think uh, I, I think you are mostly correct in in that we don't have this discussion anymore as much and mm. those who try are I don't know if they are silenced or just ignored but but yeah I think that there's a, I mean I think here yeah, there are there are um, that that some of the anthropological um, uh, approaches can be valuable and useful. Um, you know, there's a very very famous book by Mary Douglas, Purity and Danger. Mm. And actually, they want me to think about a theme that we might discuss in the you know in the symposium. And um, this this could come into it. Um, I mean, a kind of taking off from her ideas and seeing where they've gone. Um, and her, in Purity and Danger, she says that every society must organize its lines of purity and impurity. She, her famous maxim was, um, um, dirt is matter out of place. So basically, a society organizes what is dirt and what is not dirt, and that varies according to that society's um, ideas and values. And I think that You know, in some, sorry, in some ways, I was, you know, brought up a Catholic, and I ceased to be a Catholic a very long time ago, but I have retained clearly a tremendous interest in many of the ways that Catholicism thinks about the world. My interest in imagery is, of course, very Catholic. My interest in the ritual effects of words and the power of words 
also very Catholic. I mean, so I, I'm very formed by it. Now, one of the things that, of course, is absolutely central to Catholicism is the sacredness of the body. I mean, that's what it's about. You know, Mary's body, Jesus's body. I mean, it's incarnational religion, rather unusual, actually, an incarnational religion. And um, so I think that when I arrived in, I went to um, Gdansk, uh, um, Poznan. I went to Poznan, and in Poznan they have enormous posters, enormous posters of naked, you know, girls in suntan with almost nothing, kind of advertisements for holidays, advertisements for underwear. And I said, good heavens, I didn't expect Poland to. And they said, yes, there's a lot of discussion about it because, so the whole size of buildings. And these are goddesses. These are goddesses. So the point is, where they should be. It's not that we don't want to see them or we don't want to honor them or that we don't want to show them. I'm not going to say women have got to be covered up, not at all. It's just where. And I think that's important. And perhaps why. See what I mean? Yeah. Hmm? And perhaps why. <laughs> and why, yes, and why. So the commercialization yeah. matters, the, you know, the, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't know how to legislate it, and I'm not going to try. But I certainly think we should be aware of the power. I mean, the power is, is obviously being harnessed for selling the goods. So the power is there, and we should think about how we use it. And the girl, and young girls too. They know their power, but they don't know how to how to use it. Yes. No. I mean, the other day I was researching something, and I wanted to find an image of Dante in um, uh, from a manuscript. So I put in, you know, Dante manuscript illuminations, and I got to an Italian website um, where they did have Dante illuminated manuscripts. And then all down the side was this pornography. <laughs> really. I mean, disgusting. Yeah. And I thought. Heavens, you know, the child doing her homework would might want to put a Dante illuminated manuscript in her homework, <laughs> and she has to see this stuff on the side of the screen. Incredible. So I'm not very keen on that. I'm really quite against that. And I think that it can be contained within, I think you could perfectly well um, control that within the limits of free speech, because it's a question of where, not a question of what. Yeah, and, and but but I guess we need uh, a, a better conversation about these things, and uh, I, I think there is a response to <coughs> sort of censor first, but that's quite difficult. Yes, and, and kids today they will find it anyways if if they want. Yes. So so sort of tell them the the, the stories that makes them sort of able to deal with these things. I think that's important. Yes, yeah. I think you're right. And I think that is one of the, yes, I mean, one of my most sort of favorite examples of how fairy tales can work in a very, I think, helpful way is the story of donkey skin, which, um, um, you know, the, the, it's a Perrault tale about a father who wants to marry his daughter. Um, it was told in many, many different forms. There's many medieval versions there's a trace of it in um, Shakespeare's Pericles. And the famous classical um, version is Apollonius of Tyre. Anyway, it's a very, very well-known story in medieval romance. And Perrault tells it in a rather delightful sort of tongue-in-cheek, very light way. And 
it, it all comes out happily, of course. But the, but the interesting thing about the story is that it's, the, the, the fairy tale setting distances it from home. You know, this is all taking place a long time ago in a very distant country with a king and a queen, and this, the queen dies, and then um, he promises he will never marry anyone but anyone who's as beautiful and wonderful as his dead queen. Then notices his daughter, and she's just like his, her dead mother, so he wants to marry her. And and um, she runs away. the The fairy tale is entirely on her side. Um, she has a fairy godmother who helps her, and eventually it all comes out right. And in the in the fairy tale, and the father repents, and it all comes out okay. Now, what's interesting about this fairy tale is that it does tell you about child abuse. Incestuous child abuse. It gives the daughter the right to refuse her father, not to be obedient. It it upholds the daughter in the story, running away. It shows that other people will help her. It shows the father to be in the wrong, but it does it all in a entertaining, in an entertaining way that isn't that passes on the instruction, passes on the knowledge, but doesn't terrify the, the young person listening or the child reading um, with the fact that it's, you know, the, the stranger, the, the neighbor in the street. It doesn't, it doesn't domesticate it in such a way that actually uh, contaminates the immediate environment. The immediate environment is... It, the dangers, the, the possible dangers of the immediate environment are revealed, but they're not merged. Hmm. So you actually, whereas now the tendency seems to be to tell children straight. And if you tell children straight, it's like listening to the news. You just get dispirited at the ghastliness of the world. Hmm. I mean, if you say to a child, you know, you mustn't let your father interfere with you, that's very threatening. Whereas if you tell them a fairy tale about a king who wanted to marry his daughter and the daughter said, no, daddy, I don't want to do that, I'm going to run away, you're passing on something in a much more subtle way, don't you think? Yeah, I think so, and, and that's perhaps why fairy tales and stories sort of live on, perhaps. Yes, I mean, the, you see, Rapunzel... Um, Rapunzel went the Grimm's. This is a very famous case of the Grimm's editing, ru ruining a story. So mm -hmm. Rapunzel, which you probably know, she she's when she's when she's in the first version, eighteen twelve, she's imprisoned in the tower, and the prince sees how she, the old witch gets in up her hair, and copies her, and then he visits Rapunzel, and then a, a, a few weeks later, she says to the old woman. Why are my clothes getting so tight? So the old woman then immediately falls into a rage and says, "You, you know, you harlot! What have you been doing?" So, and then the Grimms decided that this was absolutely, you know, scandalous. So they changed it in the 1857 version, which is the version that most people read now. Um, Rapunzel says to the old woman. Why are you so much heavier than that lovely prince I pull up on my hair when you're not here? <laughs> so so she, she becomes a sort of idiot. And the story loses its central point, which is, again, sous-entendu, a kind of implication in the story is, don't lock up your daughters 
and not tell them about life. This is not the way to help them not get pregnant. The way you help them not to get pregnant is to tell them about things and give them freedom, but warn them about what might happen. You don't, you don't just keep them in ignorance. So the story in its original form contains a message about the need to give um, young people the chance to survive in the world, the means of surviving. But the, ver the version that they've censored doesn't. And I think this is another example where Disney has sort of went back to the original. Yeah. I think in the, in the latest Disney movie about Rapunzel, they're giving agency and power back to, to her, I think. Yes, although I must say that she's one of these new Disney heroines who's very kind of active and, yeah. and accomplished. She's sort of good at everything and she's, <laughs> yeah. she's sort of hyperdynamic. And she, um, and also they're very keen. That, that, that Disney film is written by men. That there's a difference when they're, I mean, there's a, they, they, it is different when the scriptwriter is a woman. And on some of them, on Beauty and the Beast, it was a woman scriptwriter. I think it's better myself. But um, in, in the Entangled, in they think that she's um, and Frozen was written by a woman, and I think Frozen's got some interesting things in it too. I, I don't. I'm not entirely. I don't think all women are. I mean, it's not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not making a simple. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of very mm. good male male writers who intuit female characters. It's not. I'm not. In fact, when I was when I wrote Monuments and Maidens many many years ago, I was criticised by feminists in those days for actually saying that the mind was ambidextrous and that, that many men wrote very well about women and in the minds of women and vice versa, and that I didn't believe that we should be um, contained and constrained by our, the circumstances of our birth at all in terms of the imagination. So, and in those days, that was considered not to be proper feminism. But um, that's changed now. Anyway, so I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that I think in these production meetings, when there are more female voices present, to make the Disney characters, that when there are predominant numbers of women, you do actually get a more subtle comp comp complexity of character. And in um, Tangled, they thought that they would make her very effective, very effective and emancipated young woman if she was sort of whacked her lover over the head with a frying pan, which is really not... <laughs> Again, not the violence. Yeah. yeah, not <laughs> yeah. the solution at all. <laughs> but okay. but there, at least there, there seems to be some kind of renegotiation um, of gender roles in, in, in these movies that we perhaps... Yes, there is. And, um, but, uh, yeah. but then one of the reasons that I became interested in the Arabian Nights, um, I, I mean, there were two reasons, one, or many reasons, actually. I mean, first of all, I realized that I had overlooked the incredible importance of the contact with the Middle East in the development of our folklore and our fairy tales. That I had somehow, that I had, that because of the way we're taught and because of the patterns of publication and translation, that we think of Europe and the Middle East as kind of separate and totally almost without contact. But that's such a mis, mis, such misjudgment. And this Mediterranean, the sea routes, the sea routes and the trade routes over land you know, created these multiple conversations, multiple layered conversations. And actually, in, in, in your part of the world, because you're north, aren't you? Bergen is north. Yeah. I mean, Bergen is up in the, you know, 
there's an extraordinary amount of exchanges of stories going around the circumpolar, the circumpolar routes. I mean, it's quite interesting that you get, in, you know, in, um, in, in, Asia, in Asia, you get similar kinds of material to Lapland going around that bit. So, so anyway, there's a lot, there's a huge amount of, of um, huge importance in this, the sea routes and the land routes. And the whole corpus of imaginative narrative from the Middle East poured into our, um, into our, um, our own stories. And so compendia like Boccaccio and, and Straparola, two of the important Italian collections, um, are full of Middle Eastern references. Shakespeare's full of them and so forth. So, so I realized I'd really overlooked it. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to try and open up the encounter. And then um, I was very, very captivated by the heroines of the Arabian Nights, who are very different from ours. I mean, they're much more active in, in interesting ways, not with frying pans, but... <laughs> and um, there's a lot of cross-dressing so that they can use, so that they can be adventurous, um, because obviously the society did confine them, so they cross-dress when they don't want to be confined. But they're very expressive. There's a lot of actual female speech, both represented in the figure of someone like Scheherazade, was actually telling the stories, but also within the stories, there is a lot of passionate female speech at different ages. There are old women, there are young women, and so forth. So there's a lot of female writing. There's quite a lot of um, female poets and um, singers are represented within the stories. So there's this presence of female articulacy um, that I really responded to. Bravery, courage, as well as a lot of misogyny of a very entertaining kind, a lot of powerful evil women as well. It, it's complicated, and of course I wrote you know, quite a long book about it, but, but um, uh, so that attracted me. And, and then of course there was a, for me there was a very powerful political incentive, because when the first Iraq war um, happened, I was in Paris actually, I was teaching at Paris, um, um, Ville Tanneuse, Paris 13, a, a short course there, and um, and I had the radio on because I was trying to improve my French, listening to the news in French, and um, and they the news kept saying la route la route de Basra, you know. So, and I thought the road to Basra, you know, where do I know that from? The road to Basra, of course I knew it from the Arabian Nights, and as I wanted to do something, something about the war, I wanted to. This is the nineties. I wanted to kind of try and you know, respond, but I don't have any political knowledge or, you know, I don't have any historical knowledge, really, of the region, a bit more than I had in the past, but at that point I had no historical knowledge at all. I, um, I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, I can look at the literary and cultural uh, conversation. That's what I do. So I shall do that. I shall try and, um, try and you know, produce a response a response asking for peace and harmony and conversation through the cultural interchange. And that's what I've been doing now sort of pretty much since then, actually. I've been very involved. I mean, I don't, as, as a child, I spoke Arabic like a child. 
up to the age of six. Um, but unfortunately, it was an effect of the colonial attitudes of my childhood that they didn't want, nobody thought of keeping up my Arabic, hmm. although they kept up my French. I mean, I learned French first in, in, in Egypt. So my French was always fostered, but my Arabic fell away. So I can't, I don't, I can't uh, read, read or speak Arabic at all. But, um, but I, I feel a certain, you know, childhood music in the language. I sort of hear it a bit. But I have been now rather immersed in, 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 in uh, Middle Eastern culture since, since then, trying to, trying to keep up this conversation. And we've done various things. There have been quite a lot of initiatives. I'm on the board of the Library of Arabic Literature, which is a wonderful enterprise. It's trying to produce a canon. Um, they don't call it a canon. They say a corpus, a body of literature, but it's going to be equivalent to the Pleiad or to the Loeb Classical Library. So it's going to be, it's, it's in, well, they've published nine titles so far, and they have many planned. It's dual language, uh, me, medium-priced, very nice editions. And in many cases, it's the first time the particular Arabic text has been properly edited in Arabic and translated clearly by scholars into readable English. So it's a very, it's a monumental undertaking of scholarship and um, literary, literary heritage. And the range of titles goes up to the, the, the most recent is a 19th century novel called Leg Over Leg, which is a kind of raunchy, mischievous, uh, slightly postmodern kind of novel that was inaugurated in some ways the modern Arabic novel. And, and that, um, so I'm on the board of that, even though I can't read Arabic, because I try and, and we're going to have a big conference in Oxford in April, April the 25th, uh, with a lot of people coming, translators and editors and comparatists, to talk, to open up the conversation between European literature and Middle Eastern literature and the different modes of narration. That's what I'm interested in. And so and I've also organized a series of seminars um, with four visiting writers from the Middle East because the Library of Arabic Literature is for dead writers. So four, I wanted to bring it, to continue it. So four writers are coming who um, are still with us. <laughs> one from Morocco, one from born in Libya and lives now in somewhere else, but, um, and uh, one from Lebanon and one from Tunisia. So, and of course, many of them speak French, so I can speak to them. Actually, some of them write in French, too, but uh, these ones write in Arabic. So, so, that's, so I wanted, that's one of the areas where we could also do something. Yeah, and, and in Norway, the, the last year, we have had this sort of national discussion about the, uh, the scary foreign Islamic world that intrudes Yes. Um, and uh, of course the the good and honorable Norwegian culture that has to stand against it. I've, and I think you find this story all around Europe in some way. And uh, to tackle that with stories that sort of relieves the amnesia uh, of the common shared past, I think that's a good way to go about it. Um, yes, sort of well, I, I mean, that was that's very much, you know, the... The, the desire, I mean, that's the, yes, and, and one of the things that is, you know, various, I mean, there are several very striking aspects of our present predicament. Um, I mean, one is that 
our ignorance of Arabic and Islamic tradition is much deeper than our ignorance of, say, Chinese. I mean, I, and I, I simply don't understand why this is, because actually the contact has been greater, if anything. I mean, the British and the French have been all over in the Middle East for centuries. So why we've remained in this total cloud of darkness? You know, I mean, one of the titles that the um, Arabic the Library of Arabic Literature has published is a Sufi female poet from the 12th century, um, Aisha. I'm not very good at remembering how they... Um, Anyway, her first name is Aisha, and um, you know she she's. I mean, who's heard of her? It's extraordinary. I mean, she's a, and she's and this kind of mysticism that she expresses, this Sufi mysticism, very ecstatic and you know extreme and enraptured, is absolutely recognizable from the troubadours, because that's the world, that that's that's what the troubadours were in touch with on the fringes of Europe, where the Moors had been, or where the Moors still were in some cases. That this was a dialogue, you know, the, in Sicily, they think that the Ghazal, the, the Persian Ghazal, influenced the development of the uh, Western sonnet. It's not, I'm, say, I'm not saying that mm. they're prior, I'm not saying that they're prior and we should acknowledge them as our forerunners, because actually they came out of, um, I mean, the such poets, these Arabic ecstatic sort of mystical love poets, um, came out of the tradition of the um, Judeo-Christian Middle East, actually, before Islam. Um, and, you know, it's in the Song of Songs in the Bible. So it, this is still, we're back in this Mediterranean basin, but um, it, what I mean is that the dialogue has been forgotten. But, and the other thing, of course, is that all this material is full of drinking and love and... <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it's it's um like like the Arabian Nights, and that's you know we're living through this uh, um, pr um, intense moment of Puritan um, fundamentalism in certain pockets. There's a lot of ordinary Islamic people, Muslims, who are not like that at all, but it's driving a. It's very distressing for the ordinary Muslim too. Very very distressing for them. Yeah, Absolutely. I would imagine so. Absolutely horrible. Uh, we are well past an hour now, so... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, not... I could stay there for hours, but <laughs> I yes, don't want I... to keep you. Um, so I think we... Let's just move to the sort of the oblig obligatory price questions. Yes, and yes. If there is time, I I will try to return to perhaps the state of the university or something like that afterwards. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, so I have to I have to ask you um, before you got the call, uh, were you familiar with the Holberg Prize? Well, I didn't know. I, I had heard of it, and absolutely because um, Kristeva won it, didn't she? Julia she Kristeva, yes. I and I know her. So I I mean I, I, I when she got it, I noticed that. I mean, I don't see her very often, and I haven't actually seen her for a while. But, you know, she wrote a famous essay about the Virgin Mary, Starbuck Mater. And um, in that essay on, on Starbuck Mater, she quoted my book. And so, for, because Julia Kristeva is very, very famous, um, for quite a long time I was um, kind of caught up in her aura because she had um, cited my book so extensively. 
So people would say, ah, your book is the one that Julia Kristeva cited. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so um, and then I have met her, you know, a few times. And um, so I knew that she had won it. And then I, Bruno Latour is somebody I admire a great deal. I like his work a lot. So he was, I noticed he'd got it too. So I am aware of it. And I'm extremely surprised. I mean, totally amazed to be, I really am to be in their company quite fully. And you have just, you just had a couple of days to, to dwell on this, but um, do, do you have any idea of what it means for you to, to win this prize? Well, of course, it, it puts me in a, I mean, it, it gives me a kind of recognition which I never expected to have. And I think it is a recognition. I mean, I, I, I imagine some people will think, you know, Good heavens, why on earth her? But I think that on the whole, people accept. I mean, I, for example, would accept the um, judgment of the panel as being, uh, you know, considered, and 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 therefore it sort of puts me in a rather different position from usual. I, I would think of myself as somebody who, well, it's it's an unexpected recognition. A very unexpected recognition. It does put me in a different position. I think it makes me less um, eccentric. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. It's made me. It's moved me into more onto more mainstream ground. I mean, I think in some ways, my you know, because of my career being eccentric, but also to some extent, my thought has been not. You know, people have often slightly laughed at me. Oh, you're the person who writes about fairy tales. Ha, ha. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a recognition also of the field of my inquiry. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I hear you, but uh, eccentric wasn't the thought I had when I <laughs> sort of have read up on you these days. <laughs> really? Uh, and then that's perhaps a testament to how things has changed and how you have changed things, I guess. Well... It, it it wasn't weird to me that someone researched or wrote about fairy tales. That was perfectly normal. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, you have a tremendous history of it in a tradition of it. In in I mean, Scandinavia has been in the forefront of that actually. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> wow. So there's maybe that's yes. But uh, in in more practical manners, um, there is a bit of money attached to this prize. I know. And uh, have you given it any thought? Uh, what do you plan to do with it? <laughs> well, I think I need—I think I need a bit of guidance, really, and 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 I need to um, uh, look and see what other people have done. Um, um, I don't—I—I—I've I, been—I think you sent me a link to Michael Cook, did you? Yeah, I did. Yes, yes. So I, I'll, I and I hope to meet him when I go. I'm going to Princeton. I hope to meet him. So maybe I, I can talk to him a bit about what happened. You know how how he's been handling it. And what he's been doing. Do, what has he been doing? I think he planned to sort of um, uh, arrange conferences for his students and, and stuff like that. Um, to sort of pass yes. on. Yes. Yeah. I, I would like, I mean, I, I, at the moment I'm a little bit sort of, uh, well, one of the themes of my seminars next term at Oxford is about um, how you hold on to your culture when you're displaced 
So it's about wandering and exile and and culture. And I don't want it to be ethnic nationalism. I'm very against ethnic nationalism. But I do think that a child growing up in a refugee camp has a right to culture as great as a right to food and shelter. So I'm quite keen to try and... I, and I don't know if the UN or or one of the charities that works with, one of the NGOs that works with um, refugees, refugee camps. I mean, there's, we have so many millions of people now living in refugee camps. Um, I don't know if they have a branch that deals with the cultural um, side of these places. But, you know, if you look at them, if you look at the photographs of them, they're just rows and rows and rows of identical tents or identical uh, prefabricated housing shelters. And I was, I think it would be quite nice to try and, create a kind of idea there should be some place in a refugee camp which is a free space for and you know for singing for poetry for dance for music do you see what i mean and i, I there isn't probably enough money to to um actually uh, create you know to pay for singers and dancers and <laughs> but um, I, I would like to see what, what they do in that respect you know they have a name for it they call it intangible heritage there's a word for it a phrase intangible heritage and that's what's broken for a child when a child when a child's town is bombed and they go to live in a refugee camp on the other side of the border the, 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 the connection to culture is broken. All they get then is Wi-Fi with, you know, CNN news. When you mention it, um, I I recently saw a video by by Neil Gaiman, I think, another oh. British uh, author, uh, where he sort of were in a refugee camp and sort of called for attention uh, to that. I don't know if he are oh, doing any of. This kind well, of we work. could ask him. Maybe we could bring him to Norway, and we can talk about this. That would be very cool. <laughs> if, you, if you can find the link to that, will you send it to me? Absolutely. I He's will. exactly the kind of person because yeah. Neil Gaiman uses material from everywhere in his work. Yeah. And that's exactly what I mean. That you don't have ethnic nationalism. Nobody's going. To, I don't want children learning ballads about the enemy, which is you know very much part of some of the. Um, cultural heritage. We don't want that. We don't want, you know, terrifying not lullabies about the enemy coming down to steal children. But, um, but, but we. But it's just a question of having access to that 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 side of the side of human capacity. And he would be brilliant. I fully agree. <laughs> mm, yes. I've just bought his new book. I haven't read it yet. The Sleeper and the Spindle. It's a Snow White retelling. Yeah, I haven't had the chance to read that myself either. Uh, the last one was the um, the ocean. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, the end of the lane. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yes. No, he's good. I mean, there are quite a number. I mean, there's some wonderful writers of that kind. I mean, we've got we've it's a time it's a time of tremendous strength. I mean, some of them are a bit old, like Alan Garner. He's wonderful. But he he is very old, but he could be taped. But of course, it's, they would be writing in English. You've got to have locals. You've got to have people speaking in the language of the refugee camp. 
but they can be using material that's and the main thing is that it should be uh, rhythmic because that's very very important for children for learning expression hmm. that there's you know is is the traditions of ballads and rhymes and all that it tunes the brain i think this sounds like an a very good and a very honorable idea and i hope it turns out to, to something yeah yeah mm. i mean that's there are festivals, I suppose. I mean, I don't know if there's... I, we'd have to do some research. Does the, does the foundation allow for that kind of thing? I mean, would there be someone available to do some research into what might be a, a way of... You know, do you see what I mean? Yeah, the, I see. I, I, could, I, I will check into it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Find out yeah. you know, if the UN has a, has a scheme of some kind that one could take part in. I almost don't want to to end uh, yes. I, yeah. on a negative note, but uh, I was a bit curious about the whole why I quit thing. Oh dear, that was so awful. Uh, but I mean, if you been... don't want to talk no, about no, no, it, no, 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 uh, I'm thrilled by your <laughs> yeah. response. And actually, of course, it's very, very surprising that um, you know, when I wrote the article, what happened was that they they totally, I mean, they behaved incredibly badly towards me because they had asked me to do various things and then they'd asked me to do things that were incompatible with those things so I mean it was sort of crazy I mean they told me to do the Man Booker International Chairing they told me to take up the Fellowship at All Souls because all of this counted towards the you know the record of the university um, I offered to go on half-time pay I didn't put that in the article but I offered to go on half-time pay because I, um, or perhaps I did put it in the article, but anyway, I, I offered to go on half-time pay, even though they had told me to do this, not, not on that, but I said, okay, I would do, go on half-time They said, no, you have to go off on no pay. And, that, and then I realized that um, this was totally unfair on other people because, you know, I could afford it um, because I don't have to pay for my children anymore and so forth, but, uh, but I, couldn't, I couldn't, my colleagues couldn't do that. If they'd been asked to judge the Man Booker International or take up a fellowship for research, which not paid, of course, um, they um, they couldn't just take no pay. I mean, it was so crazy, total exploitation. And then I began discovering more and more abuses, really dreadful abuses. And it, I had many, you know, conversations about it, and and in the end, I realised that the only way that I could react and keep my honor was by resigning and talking about it and when I decided to do that I thought that's okay your time of life it's okay because you know you've done a lot of things and it doesn't matter if nobody ever asks you to do anything again because they're now ashamed of you because you're a traitor and you've written written this sh shocking thing and you've been made to the made your university has humiliated you and I thought, no, I'm going to write it because I really don't like the way they're behaving. And then since then, I've been covered in honours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you showed absolutely them. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. Absolutely incredible. I really thought I would never be asked to be a trustee again or, a, or represent anybody. Or I thought, that's it. But I want to do it because I prefer to have my freedom. I prefer to do what I can, which is write and speak and have my freedom than be shackled by them. And I thought that was the end of my official life. But in fact, I've been made a dame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now I've been given this. It's incredible. Incredible. I'm really, really amazed, actually.
I thought I would be marked down as a troublemaker and shunned. I think yeah, many scholars and perhaps students um, could see themselves in in many of your observations in that article. Uh, but I think they also are a bit in doubt what to do with that. And should they quit their day jobs? <laughs> or is there any way that uh, they could take a more active role in uh, sort of the detail of the university. I think it is very difficult and I certainly don't think people should leave their jobs because they, most people absolutely can't. I mean it's, it's, in fact one of the people who wrote to me said that in the past he had been against tenure because he thought tenure made people very complacent and lazy and it blocked other people moving and it was a very bad system. But he now thinks that that's absolutely wrong because the reason that many people can't react or and protest or speak out is because they don't have tenure. Mm. That it's crippled the um, protest in the universities because people are all so precarious, and these new managers and tyrants work on that, work with that. They work on the insecurity of the staff. But it is. I mean, I think that one of the values of you know our freedom of speech is that you can build up a condition conditions in which people are ashamed to behave in a certain way it's not i mean it would be good if the bankers would be a bit more ashamed but they don't seem they seem to be impervious to shame but actually i think here the amount of protests about the universities is having an effect i mean just this very morning the radio reported that under a Freedom of Information Act, the universities had been compelled to reveal the pay of their vice-chancellors. And it was a lead item on the BBC News that one of the vice-chancellors was paid £600,000 a year and another 10 were paid more than half a million. And that made the news, and, and the news people commented that it had to be, the information had to be obtained under the law of freedom of information because the universities were trying to conceal it. Now, this has been going on a long time. It's been going on for about 15 years, this extraordinary high pay of the university vice-chancellors. So the fact that, you know, they were forced to say it by a Freedom of Information Act and it made the news and it was received with incredulous horror that's a step forward. Because hmm. one of the things, I had to give a lecture. I mean, that means that the next university that wants to pay, that wants to run itself as a business and pay the vice-chancellor half a million will have to think about the negative publicity. I mean, we hope that means that. It means that. Of course, it doesn't necessarily. But um, one of the things that I said in, I, I had to write, I had to, I've just given another lecture, which was terrible torment to write. But um, because there were so many letters after my article, just really hundreds of letters, they um, they wanted me to follow up. So I wrote a long lecture, which will be online, actually. Um, and um, it, I'm just editing it now. It has to be half the length of the pub for publication. Probably one of the things I said in it is that I think the differential, the different in a public university. Um, which is a charity and is performing a public service that is a necessity for people, education, the differentials of pay should probably not exceed seven to one. 
between the top and the bottom. These are very difficult to, to establish because, of course, they casualize labor, so then they don't count the cleaners at all and so forth. And at the moment, the differentials are probably more than 14 to 1. So they, and, of course, within that, the people are actually teaching. The people are really doing the work that the place is created for are not being paid well and are being treated very badly, being given insecure contracts, harried and bullied. and So, you know, I, I mean, it's not at all, you know, I want to read fairy tales, I want to read poetry, I want to think about Sufi mysticism. I really don't want to think about the university mm -hmm. politics, but, <laughs> but, I was, but I was forced to um, by what happened, by what is happening. And um, it's been an ordeal and very unpleasant. But this this um, this prize is wonderful and it's a great, huge consolation and a huge uh, encouragement. Thank you. Yeah, it has been uh, an absolute uh, <laughs> pleasure to to talk with this, uh, you for this one and a half hour already. Uh, <laughs> I'm very because I talk a lot. You see, I knew that I talk a lot. I mean, sorry. I... <laughs> uh, that's why we we had you on here. Uh, and uh, of course we will see you in Norway in a couple months and uh, thank you Marina Warner for doing this interview with me <laughs> thank you so much thank you very very much and that concludes the Holberg Prize 2015 special episode of Udanat if you like this interview you can go back and check out the Holberg Prize 2014 interview with Professor Michael Cook and if you like this program, you can, of course, go into iTunes and subscribe, or you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Links, you will find them on the webpage. Thank you for listening. <laughs>